Daria Mpiambato speaks with Aspie fellow Vicky Xu about the anti-government protests sweeping through some of China's largest cities. Vicky, who has spoken with protesters on the ground, gives up-to-the-minute insights into the protesters' motivation and tactics and discusses what the demonstrations mean for the Chinese Communist Party's rule. Thanks so much for joining us today on our podcast, Vicky. I look forward to discussing the China protests with you. Hi, Daria. Thanks for having me. So first of all, I'd like to start with a bit of a broader overview of these protests. How rare is is such a wave of protests in China? And do you think it is fair to say that it is the biggest act of civil disobedience after Tiananmen Square massacre? Definitely. Um, This protest, this wave of protests um, that's happening in China right now, sweeping across many different provinces, many major cities. It is, I think you're completely right, it is the biggest civil disobedience that we have seen in China in recent years. We haven't seen anything like it since 1989 Tiananmen Square protests by the students. And what I'm hearing is that even people in China on the ground, they are saying this is very similar to what happened 30 years ago on Tiananmen Square and other Chinese cities. It is extremely significant, and I have been watching, I have been talking to people on the ground nonstop. It, for me, you know, as someone who was born and raised in China and remain very connected to China, it's, it's unimaginable. I'm, I'm so excited about it. Yeah, it is really great that you can have sort of that firsthand uh, reporting from the ground. I think it's really, really valuable. So I was just going to ask you about it. You've interviewed a few people on the ground, including a protester for your own podcast, which is called Speaking Till the End, which I recommend to all of our listeners, although it is in Chinese Mandarin. So who are these protesters? Is it mainly young people, students, or is it more of a mix? From what I'm hearing, the protesters are mostly young people, mostly university students and some professionals. There are older people who have joined as well, but they are the minority. What I'm hearing is that the women have played an especially strong role in these in this wave of protests. Oh, and and just to reflect, just to go back a little bit to your last question as well. So when I've asked protesters, why are they protesting? Why are they, you know, risking everything, their lives, their safety, their futures, their careers to take the straits and to express their anger and frustration at this Chinese Communist Party? They are literally quoting people from 30 years ago. They're saying, it's my duty, which is this you know, very famous line about 1989 Tiananmen Square protests. And back then, when a foreign journalist asked a Chinese student 30 years ago why he was going to Tiananmen Square to protest, that was what he said, it's my duty. And I'm hearing this line again and again from protesters today in 2022 that, you know, to protest against COVID zero, to protest against the Communist Party, they're saying that it's their duty. That is really interesting and and quite inspiring, especially knowing how strict and severe the sort of surveillance apparatus is in China these days, which brings me to my next question about protest tactics. Like how are these protesters even managing to organize and to skirt the sort of overpowering information control within China? Yeah. So in terms of protest tactics, I think there have been, you know, a number of stages. So, you know, at the very beginning, like what 
essentially inspired this wave of protests was that right before the 20th Party Congress, there was this one lone man, lone protester in Beijing. His name is Peng Zaizhou. He held up a banner that's, you know, that it, it has a whole thing on it, but basically it said, He thinks the Chinese people need to stop doing so many COVID tests every day, and then they they need to eat,、um, and they don't want the you know he called Xi Jinping President Xi Jinping a dictator. So that one man protest essentially sparked a whole what now seems to be a political movement. So right after that one man protest in Beijing, Chinese people, especially young people. Started sending messages and photos and slogans about that one-man protest to each other via Apple's AirDrop. So people were, you know, people know that there's censorship and people know that the government is watching. But AirDrop is a very clever way to share information without the internet, you know, without leaving any record. But very soon after that, once the government noticed. I assume what happened was that the government gave Apple an ultimatum or something, because very soon in the next version of Apple's system up- update in China, the function AirDrop would be automatically closed after ten minutes of you know being inactive. So essentially, Apple changed the rules for AirDrop just in China, so that Chinese people could no longer use AirDrop as a you know way of organization. But you know, after that, there has been many different other ways for protesters, for not protesters, but for Chinese people who are dissatisfied with the government or policies, to express. You know, so there are, and then there are Telegram groups. Telegram is this encrypted messaging app that lets you register and use a username to interact with other people on Telegram, and the groups are. You know, especially useful for gathering, for organizing a gathering, and this is the same in Iran and in, back in 2019 in Hong Kong. But unfortunately, my understanding that that is that a lot of these Telegram groups now have been infiltrated by Chinese cops. So, and protesters are very aware of this. So now, you know. People are also relying on old-fashioned methods and also decentralized methods, such as just posting a picture saying "I'm here" or just simply grabbing a piece of paper, a, a sheet of blank paper, and stand outside. And, and this is very—I'm seeing some reports saying you know holding up a blank sheet of paper is innovative. It is. It is courageous, but it is, it is not innovative. This is this has been used back in you know. Decades ago, back in Soviet Union days, so yeah, that is also really clever. So, for example, in Tsinghua at Tsinghua University a few days ago,、uh, which is China's, you know, it's like China's Harvard. There was one young woman who started this, who held up one blank sheet of paper and stood outside, and that actually inspired, from what I read, more than a thousand students to follow suit, and that started. You know, just standing outside with a sheet of paper that started the whole protest, and they didn't use the internet. They didn't use any technology to organize that, and it's just it's 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 remarkable. Yeah, it's even more significant that it happened at Tsinghua because it, on top of being China's Harvard and probably the most important university in the country, it is also like the breeding ground for CCP leaders, right? And Xi Jinping's alma mater. So you would expect they would be way more loyal to the party than you know. Vast majority of other students. 
Indeed, and the Chinese Communist Party is actually very, very wary of student protests. You know, given what happened in 1989, and given how these universities were sort of like breeding grounds for radical ideas. So whenever there's dissent brewing in China, especially in Beijing, there would be a lot of police officers sent to these campuses to watch and trying to 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 crack down. So the students know what they're getting into, but they are doing it anyway. And again, it's just nobody has seen anything like it in the last thirty years. Yeah. So going a little bit back to how the protests actually started. So they, they were initially mainly focused on on COVID restrictions, and there was a huge wave of anger that burst after a building fire in the capital of Xinjiang, Urumqi, that killed at least 10 people, according to official reporting. So that fire and those deaths were blamed on the COVID lockdown. But now it's also become a protest about freedom of expression, like many of the protesters have mentioned. To what extent do you think the protests reflect a deeper anger about broader issues and political and of leadership of, of the CCP? Yeah, that's that's a really great question. As you said, you know, the sort of catalyst for this wave of protests was the fire in Wurumshi, and you know, what people were saying was that ten, at least ten residents, were trapped in a building that was locked down, and they weren't able to get out, and then they were burned to death. But you know, the officials actually deny this account. But nonetheless, this event. Really fired a lot of people up, and this is after you know there have been many, many more deaths that people blame COVID zero for. You know, before there are so many suicides, and then that there are traffic accidents. There are just there have been so many deaths that people, yeah, blame the COVID zero policy for. So the anger has been building and building and building. And according to one protester from Shanghai that I spoke to in my podcast. You know, when he arrived, so two days ago, shortly after the Wurumshi fire, two days ago, he took it to the streets. But what he thought he was going to initially was this vigil for the lives that were lost in the fire in Wurumshi. So he arrived to the site, and this was the a road in Shanghai called the Wurumshi Middle Road. So he went to the road, and he saw. All these people with their flowers and with the Chinese tradition is to pour alcohol onto this shrine kind of thing, you know, as as if like it's a toast for the dead or something like that. But initially, it was that. But then, as more people gathered, people kind of became galvanized, and then they kind of inspired each other, and the kind of the anger and the frustration sort of multiplied. And then some people started yelling some slogans. So initially, they were yelling things like "Stop COVID zero," or you know "Stop COVID zero in Xinjiang," "Stop COVID zero in Shanghai." And we have to bear in mind that Shanghai residents really, really suffered for a number of months this year. Many people didn't have access to food, to medicine. So, you know, residents everywhere in China are angry, and the fire made them sad and even angrier. So they started yelling these slogans like "Stop COVID Zero Policy," and that very quickly shifted to "Down with the Communist Party" and "Down with Xi Jinping," because everyone knows deep down that 
you know, COVID zero policy is a product of the Communist Party and is a product of Xi Jinping not willing to admit that, you know, he's he's made the wrong call or he's made the wrong decision. And everyone knows that COVID zero is basically determined by one man's will. So those really, really political slogans also came out. But according to protesters I've spoken to, there are many different kind of factions within, you know, this wave of protests as well. Not everyone has the same kind of political how do you say, aspirations, or not everyone is believing in the same thing. There are many differences. Some people, more moderate people, they believe their ultimate goal is just to push or make the Communist Party change the COVID zero policy, while other people think we need a new government, we need a new leader, or we need something else. So it kind of, it's, you know, it's like the Hong Kong protests or like any other mass struggle there are a range of opinions and thoughts. Yeah, and especially, as you said at the start, you know, with women being at the forefront, I'm sure there are reasons for that. You know, there are additional grievances that Chinese women would be feeling with, I don't know, the three-child policy, for example, this pressure being put on them to bear children, not being able to be represented politically and also just in general not being able to express themselves and, like, having received especially the feminist movement in China, having received continuous crackdowns during the year. So I I can see why that would be the case. And then there's, you know, all of the ethnic minority groups that would have been suffering for for many, many years that would have their own set of grievances and maybe also some specific sentiment against, you know, other Han Chinese that maybe haven't been so vocal about what was going on in Xinjiang, for example, and they haven't been really able to support Uyghurs in their struggles against CCP oppression fundamentally. So do you think that's sort of affecting all of this, maybe coordination within the the protest movements? Yeah, I think so. I think you're completely right. You know, there are women who feel as if the protest itself is not pro-women. And there are Uyghurs who have grievances that, you know, them being locked up in concentration camps or what the Chinese government call uh, re-education centers, you know, that have never sparked the same kind of anger among mainland Chinese people. And there definitely are fractions. But I also think overall, many protesters seem to realize that the only way that they can have any real outcome is that they band together, is that although they don't agree with each other, they have to work with each other. So I think there's that realization as well. So the protesters seem to be borrowing a lot of lessons from the 2019 Hong Kong protests. You know, and the Hong Kong protests are famous for in, in Mandarin, it is Bugusi. So they don't, basically, they try to stay united and they don't divide themselves. And I think that that is extremely important. Thanks for that, Vicky. I might just move on to what has been the reaction by the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese government authorities. Do you think the reaction to the protests has been milder than, than what people might have expected so far? and why that might be the case? So far, many students have been arrested. Some have been released. 
Some have been sent to quarantine centers, and I, I've got to say, it's it's very convenient that there are all these quarantine centers available to to send people into. I think what is happening right now is that the security apparatus is actually struggling to keep up with suppressing the protests. So, you know, for example, we're seeing a lot of recruitment ads for auxiliary police. And, you know, we, we saw this happen in Xinjiang in the early days of the crackdown. It seems like police officers so far have been playing catch up. And we also see in news that, you know, for example, in Shanghai, police officers are now getting onto subways and then checking people's phones one by one to see if they have any anti-revolutionary material on their phones or if they're getting in touch with overseas forces. I think we don't know yet what's going to happen, like how CCP would react to the protests fully yet, because this is something that is developing. And we don't yet know how exactly the Communist Party is actually, you know, at the highest level, they are interpreting the events. I think it's likely and it's possible that, you know, foreign forces would be blamed again. It's just because there is this inherent bias or, or mistaken view that Chinese people can possibly have their own agency and they can possibly want a different government. So I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, if like in one month or two months time, all the protesters would be accused of colluding with the CIA. I, I would totally not be surprised by that. But yeah, so far, it, it seems like, you know, I, I haven't really heard that anyone has been charged or anyone has been sent to prison. But again, that's because it's only early days. And I think we need to keep watching. And I... Like personally, I'm really, really scared and afraid for the protesters because they're they're really brave, but also some of them, you know, a lot of them are not wearing a mask. They're on the front line and they're not really thinking about their personal safety. And then they're getting into these physical struggles and fights with the police. You know, personally, I wish protesters could do more to protect themselves and, and their faces, but Again, people have different opinions on this. I think it's really interesting that, that you bring that up. And I had been thinking about this as well, how, you know, there are several groups within China that are so used to community organizing and sort of being persecuted by the, the party state that they would be so extremely careful with their identity, uh, both online and offline, and, and use, you know, all these sort of precautions so that they can somewhat prevent being caught by the authorities. But I think because this movement is way broader than that, and it involves people that haven't really had that experience of, of community organizing, that they maybe don't fully grasp the extent of the consequences that they might face in the future. So it is a really interesting space to keep watching. I totally agree with you, Daria. I think because people are inexperienced with activism, because they're inexperienced with how far the Communist Party would go to surveil and crack down. So just to wrap it up, in Australia, in America, in Canada, all over the world, Chinese students are also organizing protests to echo whatever is happening in China. And 
and there are these large group chats where people are organizing. And I think last week I said something to a group of students that, you know, they should try to perhaps wear a mask and protect themselves. And uh, several people actually challenged my viewpoint. They said, you know, if people in China are not wearing a mask, if people in China are risking their lives, why would people outside China be worried at all that they're being surveilled? Why would they wear a mask? They find it quite lame. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I think they're right. And they're just going all in. Maybe they yeah, feel like they're, they're going all in. <laughs> to lose at this point. I just want to ask you a very small last question to, to wrap our conversation up, which has been so fascinating. But so do you think this movement going anywhere? Is there any chance of change? Is the government going to let loose of the COVID policies? Is it going to give in to any of the other requests? What do you think? I think the, the most honest answer I can give you is that I don't know, because You know, two weeks ago, if you asked me or ask any of the protesters even, you know, is it possible at all that Chinese people would be so fed up with COVID-0 and with Xi Jinping that they would take to the streets to protest? Everyone would tell you that you're crazy. But, you know, now the protests have happened and we're reporting on it. We're talking about it and it has spread like wildfire. So maybe there is something there that everybody has just missed, maybe the anger and frustration would be enough to cause real political change. And, you know, lots of people are speculating that maybe there are factional differences within the Communist Party, which is why the protests so far have been largely tolerated. And that is possible, too. We just don't know. So, you know, my honest hope as a former Chinese person myself, oh, gosh, that sounds horrible. Uh, I wish the protesters would gain something. I, I wish there would be significant changes. And at the very least, the COVID restrictions would drop. But again, we don't know. But I, I guess I would, uh, I would hope the protesters saw the best. Thanks for that, Vicky. And we hope to have you back on the podcast soon. Thank too. you. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening.